We're going to look at just the concluding portion of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we start our second major focus at the wonderful theme of this book. A blind saint wrote some words that frame our text of the morning over a century ago as she wrote this, When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and his smile will be the first to welcome me. She continues to say, Through the gates to the city, in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to see my Savior first of all. Verses 19 and 20 crystallize for us the scriptural reality of our future hope of home-going. The fact that we have a home, that we are going to it, that there are some joys attached to that which are unshakable for us as our pilgrimage comes to its marvelous and God-ordained conclusion. But you remember from chapter 1 that this is all based on our present hope of salvation. And I want to remind you that talking about a future joy of homegoing can never be detached from the reality that that is incumbent upon a present hope of salvation. If you've never entered into the present hope of salvation, you have no future joy of homegoing. There's no home to go to. If you remember, we could look at chapter 1 in two lights. First of all, salvation entered us or allowed us entrance into a divine position. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look at verse 1. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of God, or the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father. There is a security in the Father. And then look at the end of it. It says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is a secure position in God the Father and a submission to Jesus Christ. And you notice what it says there, the Lord Jesus Christ. A submission to who he is, confessing with our mouth that he is Lord, as he told us in his word. Look at verses 5 and 6. We also considered this, that not only is salvation a divine position that's secure in the Father, submissive to Christ, but it's also energized by the Holy Spirit. Our gospel didn't come to you, verse 5, in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. There is a, a reality that there is a present power, a power that can transform lives, a power that can heal, a power that can restore, a power that can keep us from temptation and from falling into sin as a habit of life. Look at verse 9. Because not only is our position secure and submissive and energized by the Spirit, but it is an active role. Verse 9 says this, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had. How you turned to God from idols, what? To serve. There's something that is vitally integrated into the gospel that we are saved and we begin offering worship to God, and out of that worship flows service to God. These people beautifully mirror this. They heard the gospel. They received the gospel. They were becoming worshipers of God, and immediately they began a lifelong process of serving 
a living and true God. And as we serve him, what do we do? Verse 10 says, we're waiting for the Son. So what's the first aspect of, of our present hope of salvation? It's a divine position. It's a divine position that's secure. We're in the Father. Christ said that no one can take us out of his hand, that, that we are his very own. We have gotten there by submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are indwelt and energized by his Spirit We are in a lifelong process of serving him. And what a marvelous thing to think of serving the Lord of lords in whatever we do. And all that time we're patiently waiting. But secondly, chapter 1 not only emphasizes our position, but it reminds us of a marvelous divine condition that comes along with that. And I really enjoyed this, and, and I think that you remember that we studied the entire doctrine of the divine condition of thanks to God. It had five elements, and I want to show you again from chapter 1 what those were, because we need to be reminded of that, because along the way sometimes our service is difficult, and we have to be characterized by this divine condition of giving thanks to God. Look at verse 2, because verse 2 has the elements of godly thanksgiving. What are they? Well, first of all, it says, we give thanks to God. Thanks, as well as worship, as well as service, are all focused on one target. Right? Who's the target? We give thanks to who? Right. Now, it's okay to tell someone else thank you, but in my heart, if someone comes up to me and says, that was terrible or that was great, if I say thanks to them, in my heart I know that I'm actually saying thanks to God who energizes, who is the one that gives the enablement, the gifts, the calling the ability. And Paul said true thanksgiving joins the other elements of our true lives live for Christ as it's focused on God. And even when I write letters of thanks to people, often when when this permeates my mind, I remember I say, I thank the Lord that you did this. I thank the Lord that you faithfully served. I thank the Lord that you have given your life or your heart or your resources because thanks is directed primarily at the author of thanks, who is God. But secondly, he said we give thanks to God what? Always. It continues into daily life. You remember that? Thanksgiving permeates our lives. It's in every part of our life. You mean at school and at home? cleaning the basement or at the doctor's office or the hospital or at the unemployment office or at traffic court. I don't know if you even have those out here in California. If you get a ticket, you go to traffic school, and it doesn't count. And I remember how many people would say, I have to serve my hours in traffic school. You can thank God for that, even for the opportunities. At the IRS office, at the car repair shop, everywhere, always, and no matter what, we are giving thanks to God He's the focus, and it permeates our lives. But I like this. Look at the next part of verse 2. It says, we give thanks to God for all of you. We need to remember that. That is a thanks that doesn't neglect even the most obscure or insignificant saint. It's a thanks for people of all spiritual standing, a thanks for people of all stations in life. Paul said, I thank my God always for all of you. That's a vital element. This kind of thanks to God remembers, shares, reaches out, and touches even the least 
and the most untouchable. The fourth element of godly thanks is, you notice he says in verse 2, making mention of you in our prayers. And there's a divine prompting that thanks has that it just issues into prayer. When we thank God for something someone's doing, we pray that the Lord would strengthen them even more. When we thank God for bringing someone through adversity, we pray that God would uphold them even more. It looks to God to accomplish what we can't humanly do. We need to be reminded of that. The majority of the things that we meet here to do this morning can only be accomplished if they're divinely energized. You cannot regiment and you cannot legislate, even as we talked about abortion, you cannot do those things apart from the divine energizing and enablement. If you do, as soon as the external force leaves, whatever's been accomplished crumbles. That's why we bring people into the fact that we ask for spiritual benefit, we ask for divine enablement, and when we thank God, we make mention in our prayers. And then I like what he continues to say in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind. And you know what's amazing about thanks to God? It focuses on God. It's constantly in our life. It looks even at the most obscure, and it's something that causes us to go to prayer, but it always has as its foundation what he says right here in verse 3, an awareness of the supernatural transformation God wishes to bring into lives. Do you see that? Bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in Christ. Godly thanks is founded on God's work of salvation. It prompts spiritual benefits. It neglects not even the least of the saints. It continues into our everyday life, and it is totally focused on God. Now, living that way, what happens? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 19. Because I want to show you the note of joy briefly of what the apostle had as he thanked God He thanked God for a very wonderful trio of things that he had a future hope about in their lives. Because the present hope of salvation had caused there to be born into their lives some very marvelous things. And I want you to see them. Look at verse 19. He says here that there are three elements of their future joy in homegoing. Number one, he says, for who is our hope? You are. You see, it was focused at people. In fact, something very interesting to look at is uh, that Paul's most intense joy was in things that will not pass away. It was in people. He says, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? It's you. It's people. It's those into whose lives he had introduced the gospel and had seen the gospel transform them. Paul was measuring his life against the backdrop of Christ's return. And he notes the sure possessions of eternal worth. And that which would really last was a life that was pointed to Christ. Now I want to read uh, in the white space of verse 19, okay? So the white space is underneath the words, okay? Between the first and second line in your Bible, I want to read to you what's not there, okay? To remind you what he's not thanking God for, because I think that's very important to note. We can discern from this verse he doesn't mention years of attendance. He didn't thank God for the fact that they had been faithfully in that Thessalonian church for 92 years. He doesn't talk about civil accomplishments 
social or business achievements. He doesn't talk about real estate holdings. Did you know that Thessalonica was Oceanside? He doesn't even talk about the magnificence of of the views from their homes. He doesn't talk about honors, awards. He doesn't talk about where they had traveled, what they had collected, how skilled they were at crafts, or how incredibly beautiful their chariot was. Those things are transient. He doesn't talk about their boats. He doesn't talk about their athletic achievements, whether young or old. And there are many other temporal things he doesn't thank God for. What does he thank God for? That they were transformed supernaturally, that they were saved, and that they would be present at that future homegoing. I think our number one priority that we must focus on is disciple-making. It's the only thing that's going to last. This building will be gone. This whole part of the earth will be gone, but the people that we invest in and make disciples of Jesus Christ are going to last forever. So what is the who? What, what is that focus Paul has? The who of his focus? It's those that he has seen become disciples of Jesus Christ. But look at verse 19, because not only does he say who is our hope, but he starts talking about something else, what he's looking forward to. And what is that? A crown. Not just a soul, not just a disciple, not just a person whose life has been invested in, who has been what only God can do, radically altered by God moving in and changing everything about them. Not only that is he looking forward to, but he said there's something else that's coming, a crown. He says, what is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? We don't hear very much about crowns anymore, do we? It's kind of a, used to be a a big thing in the old Bible conference era. I remember going to sawdust meetings, sitting in tents, And all those great old-time speakers, they were always old. They were from a different era. And they would talk about crowns and rewards. Well, this word crown isn't really what we think of. It's not something you'd see in the Tower of London crusted with gigantic diamonds and, and beautiful rubies. It's the idea of a wreath or a garland. And it was given as a result of an accomplishment. And here we find the Apostle Paul, because of seeing a present hope that these folks had entered into salvation, looking to a future moment when a faithful judge would assess the work invested in these people and would dispense some very marvelous rewards or crowns. Paul says that there are many crowns. This happens to be the crown of the unselfish laborer. It's a wreath of honor. We find the same thing mentioned in Philippians 4.1. Paul said, I have unselfishly invested my life in you in making you disciples of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to receive a crown for that. It's kind of exciting to think about that kind of marvelous to think that there's a faithful judge and a loving Lord who is going to crown those who have been faithful as unselfish laborers. There are other crowns in the New Testament. In fact, there are five that are mentioned. This is only one. There's the, the wreath of righteousness, which the victorious fighter gets, the one that goes all the way to the end of the race and fights to the very end. 
I talked to an old preacher down in seminary last week, and I said, uh, what's your priority of life? He says, I want to make it to the end of the race. I said, I haven't ever heard that one before. He said, yes. I want to make it to the end. He said, everybody's bailing out and quitting and getting distracted. And he said, I want to make it to the very end. He said, I want to finish the course, even if everybody else runs beyond me and faster than me. He said, I'm going to finish the course God has for me. There's a reward for that. The victorious fighter, the wreath of righteousness. There's another one. There's an unfading wreath in 1 Corinthians 9 for the steadfast runner, the one who doesn't let anything disqualify him. Paul said, I'm beating my body. In fact, I like the way the New English Bible translates it. He says, I give my body the knockout punch. I like that. He said, I'm not going to let my body disqualify me. Did you know there's a reward for that, for the steadfast runner? Have you ever run in a race? Do you wear your ski boots to sprint in? Do you wear those ankle weights to lose weight when you're running a race? Obviously not. The Apostle Paul says, for the steadfast runner, there's a reward. There's also the wreath of glory that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5, to the one who has been an example to the flock. Not perfect, but an example. One who has faithfully been a shepherd that can be followed. And Peter says there's a wreath of glory. And then finally, the Apostle John and also James mentions the fifth of the rewards and crowns. The one that is faithful unto death receives a wreath of life. Just having our church broken into, I think about the day is coming if America continues and persists in its course where it might be difficult and dangerous for you to come here. And maybe someone will even have to pay with their own life someday in America for being a Christian. We'll take heart. Because the one who is faithful unto death will receive a wreath of life. Wow, Paul. Those things aren't usually on our mind. We're not usually thinking about the Christian life as a fight. We don't think about running God's race to the end and not letting anything trip us up and laying aside every weight. I wonder if we're dying to self every day so it won't be such a difficult thing to give our life for Christ if he calls. You know, if we do everything we can to pamper and coddle and, and make ourselves just exquisitely cared for, it's very hard to think of dying because there's so much to give up. But if I die daily and if I deny my desires and if I live as if today, that's, that's why I'm looking forward to having some of our dear saints who are facing difficulties and even imminent death, share more with this congregation. We need to get a little perspective on how short life is. And if I was living every day, dying to self like it was my last day, things would be different. We'd have far fewer disagreements in the church if we thought about how brief life is and how focused we should be on the, the course and the race that God wants us Are we laboring for Christ? Well done. Are each of us living as an example? Well, the last thing, and I'll close with this. We've seen the who. Who is Paul rejoicing over? Souls that were won, disciples that were made. What is he looking forward to? A reward, a crown, an actual wreath to cast at Christ's feet someday. He's laboring for that. There's only five of them, and I wonder how many of us are qualifying for some of them. But finally, the where. 
And I like that because that gets everything in perspective. In verse 19, let me read it to you. For who, that's the who, that's the people, that's the converts. Who is our hope or joy? Crown, that's the what, what we're looking forward to receiving. What's our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? What? In the presence. What's the focus of this whole passage? Where we're going. He doesn't talk about streets of gold. He doesn't talk about the crystal river. He talks about what is going to be the most marvelous aspect of heaven. We shall be in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming and forever. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Christ at his coming. And there it is. It's Christ's presence. That's what we long for. That's what we live for. That's what we hope for. And that's what we labor for. And that's what we're waiting for. That's our joy. You have some that you're going to have. As you stand someday at Christ's coming and he calls us in a moment and we're in his presence, are you and I going to be looking around and be able to say, there's one my hope and joy and crown of rejoicing is. There's a disciple I made for Jesus Christ. There's a soul I won and led into following Jesus Christ. It's going to be kind of a dismal day if the Lord assesses what we spent all of our time doing. If he gave us one assignment, and we look around and we said, I got a lot of other stuff done, I just didn't get my assignment done. The Lord says, his presence is what we long for, but souls won and disciples made are our crown of rejoicing. Rejoicing.